This episode is brought to you by Cristo Rey Jesuit High School in Chicago. For 23 years, Cristo Rey has educated Latino students with limited means, preparing the leaders of tomorrow, today. Learn more about their mission at cristorey.net. That's C-R-I-S-T-O-R-E-Y dot net. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the attentively young, devotedly hip, and reverently lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello, everyone. I just want to point out to... (laughs) The listeners, something really exciting that happened to me and Ashley yeah, today. Yeah, big news. Uh, Ashley said, Zach, look what I did. Uh, and she showed me a hole in her shirt right at the elbow, on the left elbow left of her elbow. shirt. I just ripped it. I also have a rip in my shirt today <laughs> on the left elbow. So I thought what was going to be a bad thing. I ripped my shirt. I was feeling pretty dumb. But Ashley yeah, has yeah. consoled me by her co-suffering. <laughs> so thank you. Yep. Anytime. Um, it's a well-loved shirt, and we're just like getting really buff from rock climbing. That's right. So. Olga is not does not have any. I'm oh, not getting buff. No. <laughs> also, a sleeveless shirt. So, yes. <laughs> all, all right. right. Uh, what are we uh, drinking this week, Zach? We are drinking uh this. W- let me practice my Quebecois. The Sortilège. Uh, it's a Canadian whiskey. Uh, made with maple syrup. Um, it was brought to us from a listener who visited. This, yeah. So, this t- uh, so two sisters, two Loretto sisters, Sarah Rondolph and Cynthia Ann Matthew, stopped by the office this summer, and we weren't here, but they left us this wonderful maple whiskey. So, thank you to so a great fall drink to them and to all the Loretto sisters and to all Canadians. Yes. So, <laughs> cheers. Cheers. It's really and, sweet. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a dessert whiskey. Yeah. Yeah, definitely like a French toast. Like a, <laughs> it's good. All right. Who are we talking to, Olga? Today we're talking with Haley Stewart. She is a blogger, writer, podcaster, and author of The Grace of Enough, Pursuing Less and Living More in a Throwaway Culture. So we talked to Haley about her new book, um, what it means to sort of live with intention, to sort of pare down your life a little bit, move from, you know, Middle class America. Culture. Yeah. Yeah. Moving from middle class America to uh, Texas on a farm where they didn't have flushing toilets and spotty Wi-Fi and what that does for your, your spiritual life. Yeah. And the lessons it can give to all of us who might not live on farms. And you may hear some uh, some light snoring in the background. She's holding her adorable like. Two month old baby, yeah. Hill yeah. baby Hildy, oh my God. Who, who she rocked to sleep during the yeah. interview. It was, like, it was very soothing to watch. Super yeah. mom. So uh, that's Haley. More on that later. But first, signs of the times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week, so you don't have to. First, uh, Kim Jong Un, the uh, leader of North Korea, has invited Pope Francis to come visit the Hermit Kingdom. Yes. So the invitation to Pyongyang will be delivered by South Korean President Moon Jae-in, who's going to be visiting the Vatican next week as part of a trip to Europe. Yeah. And President Moon is actually Catholic. And this is pretty big because no pope has ever visited North Korea, though the late Pope John Paul II was the first to be invited. It seems unlikely that Pope Francis is actually going to take up this invitation. It'd be very problematic, maybe being seen as sanctioning a dictatorship that has a terrible human rights I mean, to say the least, yes. horrific human rights well, And also, record. yeah, North Korea and the Vatican don't have any formal diplomatic relations. So, however, Pope Francis has also been very insistent on dialogue. So 
however they respond to the invitation is definitely going to be newsworthy. What's next, Olga? Last week, a Pew study was released on October 2nd that shows that favorability numbers for Pope Francis are actually down. Um, So while seven in 10 U.S. Catholics hold favorable overall opinion of Francis, six in 10 say he is doing an only fair or poor job when it comes to sex abuse crisis within the church. Of the 36 percent who said poor, this number has doubled since January when we first heard of the Chile allegations. And it's tripled since 2015. Right. Yeah, and so this is coming um, after a very, really difficult summer in terms of the sex abuse scandal. Um, and I'm not really that surprised that Pope Francis's numbers or credibility in dealing with sex abuse have gone down. Um, we back in June and July, the uh, news about McCarrick and his alleged abuse of minors and seminarians came out, and it took a while for Pope Francis to respond to that. Um, and that was similar to the, what we saw in Chile and other. Um, other cases where it just seems like Pope Francis is a little bit tone deaf when it comes to this issue. Yeah. So I'm also, one, not surprised and two, not satisfied. I would definitely be counted among those people whose favorability has dropped and trust of how it's being handled uh, has dropped. But I, I would say that I still, I think, as most people do, have a favorable view, overall view of Francis. And I think one of those reasons is that He's shown a willingness, even if slowly, to to try and learn from his mistakes and from the church's mistakes and be set on a right path. And so I still have some hope that, you know, we're, we could move in the right direction. Right. And a lot of people are pointing to the fact that after he made the initial comments earlier this year with the survivors coming out of Chile, um, where he said there was not a single proof against Bishop Barrows, um, he later apologized and then ordered an investigation and removed Barrows. So there is evidence that he is willing to learn, as Zach said, slowly, but willing to learn from mistakes. That's right. And either way, he's not a politician. He's the Pope. So everyone should pray for him regardless. It's true. Well, we should pray for our politicians, yes. too, regardless. Also, <laughs> yeah, they might need it more. Yes. What's next, Zach? So uh, more Pope Francis Vatican news. Uh, the Synod on the Youth launched last week. The youth. The youth. <laughs> the youth. Vatican meeting, talking about the youth. I know it sounds like it could be a very boring thing, the Vatican meeting together, talking about young people. But I, I think it is important. And I, we were talking about it in prep, like, we're a young Catholic podcast. You are, as a listener, are a young Catholic engaged in this. So we should be paying attention to what yeah. uh, the Pope and bishops are saying about this. And so they've been covering a lot of topics. Yeah. So one thing that I noticed, I was editing articles about what's going on at the Synod last week. Um, and, you know, it, what's dominating are not necessarily the things that young people in the United States are most concerned about. Um, there are a lot of um, Synod fathers and participants talking about the refugee crisis and migration and giving the perspective of coming from countries in Africa or, or the Middle East that are sending these migrants or being a Catholic in Greece where a lot of these people are arriving and the different challenges um, people are facing there. So it was a good reminder of just how this is like a global church and the mm-hmm. things that we are fighting about in the U- United States, even if they are important, aren't the only things that are going to be addressed at this meeting. Definitely. And even though we mentioned earlier that Pope Francis's, you know, favorability has dropped, especially in how he's handled sex abuse. Sex abuse is, you know, looming large at the Synod, even though that is clearly not the only thing that they that the Synod fathers want to talk about. So that's also been come up. There's been uh, survivors staged to sit in and sort of protest um, and how the church has been handling this. And so it's going to continue, I think, to permeate a lot of discussions there. So we will continue to... Uh, yeah, this re- is goes on throughout the month throughout of the October. Month. Yeah. So. so if you're looking for a primer, we had that great interview with Katie Prejean-McGrady where uh, she talked about her experience uh, 
at the pre-synod meeting with the Vatican. And so stay tuned. What's next, Olga? Also happening at the Vatican this weekend, Oscar Romero is getting canonized in Rome this Sunday. At 10 a.m. local time in Vatican, which means at like 4 4 a.m. in New York time. So if if, you want to wake up, they are going to live stream the mass and you can watch it. Or you you could just wake up and be like, all right, sweet. Now I can pray to Saint Oscar Romero. (laughs) What's next, Ashley? So the nuns on the bus are going back on tour. This is a group that started back in, uh, I think, 2012 under Sister Simone Campbell uh, as a way to support health care. Now they are turning their sights on the tax reform bill that passed last year. Mm -hmm. Um, So they are going on tour starting in California and making their way across the United States and will end up at Mar-a-Lago, President Trump's resort in Florida. Yeah, they're taking kind of a a, a zigzaggy route throughout the United States because they're so 21 states across this country over the the next month. But one of the stops is going to be in Morristown, New Jersey, where Jesuitical is going to join the nuns on the bus for yep. a live show. On October 23rd. <laughs> yes. So ah. mark your calendars. Um, and the groups, as Ashley said, is, their goal is to tell the truth about the Republican tax law and hold elected officials accountable for their votes. We know that this tax policy hurts our communities while giving handouts to the wealthiest in our nation, the group said. So we'll see you in New Jersey yeah. to talk Hello, to Morristown. Sister Simone Campbell and the nuns. <laughs> What's next, Zach? I wanted to bring our last story because it's uh, for one, it was brought to our attention by uh, a member of our Facebook group. So thank you to J.D. Combs, who pointed this out. Um, but it seemed like a, a bright spot uh, in the news cycle this week and something, you know, people talk about how symbols are sometimes meaning meaningless and empty. But this seemed like a really powerful symbol that the Diocese of San Diego is trying to enact. They're trying to build a giant statue of Mary, I think 40 feet tall on a hilltop in uh, San Isidro, which is the sort of the area that is directly north of the U.S.-Mexico border. And so they're attempting to build a 40-foot Statue of Mary that is inspired by the Statue of Liberty here in New York that would sort of be the West Coast version of that and sort of a new generation of immigrants and refugees uh, version of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, Yeah. I think it's such an important symbol because we, you know, we do have the Statue of Liberty in New York. um, And for millions of immigrants who came from Europe, this was the symbol Mm -hmm. of welcome and what, you know, we as a country held up as our values, that we take your poor huddled masses. Um, And we need the fact that we don't have that same or Mm -hmm. as a country, it seems like that attitude is not holding up when it comes to our uh, brothers and sisters to the South has been really disheartening. Right. And I really love Bishop Robert McElroy. He's in San Diego. Um, I love the words that he had to say about this. It is a symbol and powerful reminder that for us, for us as people of faith, for us as America, the border represents not a line of separation, but a line that unites us to Latin America. And I think it's we really need to hear words like that. And it's a reminder that Mary would emphatically be with these people. She is with these people that are making this treacherous journey. The statue's name, Welcome the Stranger. Joining us via Skype is Haley Stewart. She is a speaker and author of The Grace of Enough, Pursuing Less and Living More in a Throwaway Culture. She blogs at Carrots for Michaelmas and co-hosts the Fountains of Carrots podcast. Welcome to Jesuitical, Haley. Thank you so much for having me. And she gives interviews while rocking a baby <laughs> to know. sleep. I know. Oh, my God. This this is so amazing. Our, our listeners are going to love seeing this on our Patreon. Yeah. So yeah. if you can't see, Haley is currently rocking a baby to sleep and giving an interview at the same time. So you're a super mom. Yeah. 
Um, so first question, you chose what many would consider to be a kind of unconventional path. You left a stable life in Florida near extended family and moved to Texas with your husband and kids into a 650 square foot apartment on a farm. Which is big for New York City, but yeah. I, in Texas, I always assumed you moved to Texas for the big house, not, not a closet. So, Haley, what was your life like in Florida? Sure. Well, we were homeowners in Tallahassee, Florida, had a little starter home. So nothing huge, but at least, you know, twice as big as this apartment we were about to move into. And my husband was working at a software company and it was not his passion. It was kind of sucking the life out of him. So we weren't seeing him much because he was having to work a lot at a job he didn't love. Um, We were kind of feeling stuck financially and just like we were in this hamster wheel of needing to work more in order to pay our bills, just our basic bills. But then when we were working more, it didn't actually save us money because then we were needing to get takeout more often or, you know, all these things that require would require time in order to be frugal about, but then you don't have the time because you're working more. So you're working more and seeing your family less and it isn't even getting you anywhere financially. So that's kind of the cycle we were in. And at some point you reached a breaking point with this. Yeah. We just realized this is not what we want our life to look like. We want to be together as a family. We want to be doing work that is good in and of itself and not just gets a paycheck. And so we kind of thought we needed like a reboot. We were in our late twenties. We were both 29 and we're like, we just need to do something kind of crazy to get out of this cycle where we're feeling stuck. And what was the discernment process like and trying to figure out what, what comes next? Yeah. Well, we had a lot of late night conversations and prayed together over what we were going to do. And at first we were like, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could buy a farm and become farmers? And they're like, that would be setting ourselves up for a horrible failure because we don't know (laughs) what we're doing. You know, we like set ourselves up to fail. So we don't, we can't do that. So how do we get from point A to point B? And then my husband decided to start praying for contentment and surrender in our current circumstances. So we started focusing on things we could do right then, like have some backyard chickens and grow a garden and try to prioritize family meals and things like that. And it was at that point that we prayed for surrender that the floodgates kind of opened and opportunities started emerging that we could finally make some kind of move. So it sounds like you're saying like once you decided, you you, okay, we're going to just make the best of what we got here we're not going to make a big change is when you were presented with opportunities to make the big change. Exactly. Yeah. It was really interesting because we were feeling like, okay, we can't afford to make a big change. We don't know what we're doing. And it was at that point, my husband was offered a position at our parish in youth ministry. And so he was able to do that. We were able to save some money. And then we started thinking about this internship out in Texas, that this was an opportunity for us to learn how to farm and, um, you know, not have the financial burden of buying a farm without any <laughs> expertise on what to do. And so at that point, we started to see doors opening. So, Haley, you mentioned your husband started sort of praying for surrender. What, what does a prayer of surrender sound like? Yeah, I guess we just prayed together that God would give us contentment where we were 
and help us find gratitude and joy in our life as it was instead of focusing on how stuck we felt and how unsatisfied we felt in, in the way our life was going at the time. And, and I think that that did get us in the right mental space to be ready to follow God where he was leading us. And you talk about in, in your book, uh, The Grace of Enough. So what, once you've, you've had that period of prayer and you've kind of made the leap, sold your house, are going to Texas, there's a lot of fear. And I can imagine that would be something a lot of people would relate to when it comes to like making a big life change. How did you work through that fear? Yeah, I, um, I'm a convert. And so getting to know the saints has been one of the absolute most exciting things about becoming Catholic. And I really got to know St. Joseph during that time. I guess, you know, he's kind of the house selling saint. Everybody's like, oh, your house isn't selling? Talk to St. Joseph. And but so did you I bury did a start... statue? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I, we didn't do that. We were like, let's start praying to St. Joseph. And then if our house still doesn't sell, we'll try the statue. <laughs> really? That seems like you're holding him as hostage. Yeah. A little, but... <laughs> so we started talking to St. Joseph. And I just found a lot of comfort in his intercession and thinking of how he cared for the Holy Family and that he has this love that he would desire to care for our family too. And so getting to know him was so comforting. I, I feel about him the same way about JP2 when I think about praying for their intercession, just feeling like I'm, I'm just positive that they love me. You know, they just have such like loving, comforting. So that was one piece. And then part of it was just acknowledging this is a little bit crazy and this is scary and I'm going to feel anxious about it sometimes. But I didn't have the sense that we were going in the wrong direction. I just had the sense that I'm kind of freaking out about this. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, you, you make this move to Texas and obviously like the outer trappings of your life are going to change a lot. You're living on a farm. You have animals. Um, you don't have flush toilets. Uh, but did it bring the expected like other like benefits to family and spiritual life that you were expecting like right away? We were there for a year for this internship. And I think over the course of the year, we really saw those benefits that we were hoping for. So it wasn't, definitely wasn't a disappointment. Just having a slower paced day was a huge shift for us because we would, you know, get up, have breakfast together. I'd start homeschool, some homeschooling stuff with the kids and we'd take a walk up the road to see the pigs and visit Daniel. Then we could walk back and then everybody would have lunch together and then Daniel would go back to do finish up his internship stuff for the afternoon. And then we could get together with the other people that were living on the farm and prep veggies and grill out and just sit outside until it got dark. And so it was just this shift that really opened up more time for reflection. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I had a bunch of little kids running around. You don't have that much time for reflection. <laughs> but they would point out things to me like, you know, do you notice this flower? Let's walk up to see these baby goats or, you know, just all of these things that they were noticing. I think it gave me more of a sense of attending to the beauty around me in a way that helped kind of lift my heart to God during the day that I hadn't really experienced before. And so I think that both the family time and 
the spiritual benefits of slowing down was really what we were hoping for and, and what we received. Something we were talking about as we were reading your book and talking about this interview is that uh, sort of minimalism of like, you know, Marie Kondo or what there's a lot of different people who are sort of promoting this right now in secular culture. What makes like the the Catholic version of this different? I think for Catholics, you know, we're called to put on the mind of Christ. And to do that means living differently from the throwaway culture around us. You know, Pope Francis talks about the throwaway culture in the encyclical Laudato Si and how this is how we treat the earth, you know, wastefully and with a consumerist attitude, but it's also how we view other people, seeing people as things to be used instead of people to be loved. And so I think in the Catholic view, you're trying to notice when you're looking through the lens of the throwaway culture in order to make the shift and reorient reorient your perspective towards the gospel. Now, you, you were able to sort of like to ap- approach all these things and go deeper into these things on the farm for this year, but you've since moved away from the farm and not everyone lives on a farm all the time, but what are some lessons that you learned then that you could apply to life in a city or a suburb or that, that suburb in Tallahassee? I think that one huge thing was we really enjoyed living in community. And so now we own a house again in the city. And so we are not living technically in community on a farm, (laughs) but realizing, hey, it's important to know our neighbors. It's important to make where we live now into a community as best we can, whether that means getting to know the person who lives next door or having, um, trying to live close to our friends and our Catholic community so we can keep nurturing that. And so I think community was huge and trying to really nurture and pursue that. And then also the kind of family time we had on the farm was something we really didn't want to give up, but you know, you have to be able to pay your mortgage. (laughs) So my husband is working at a local nonprofit now, and he actually got this job partly because he was excited about the work, but also partly because the schedule really works for us as a homeschooling family. He works some evenings. And so then we're all able to be together for the whole school day and he can be a part of things and we can have breakfast together and cook a big midday meal together and he can take the kids on nature walks and we can go to daily mass and just all of those things, um, trying to figure out a way to make it possible even though we're living a more quote unquote normal life. Right. So one question I had when I was reading your book, so I like there's part of me that would just love to move to a farm in the middle of nowhere and get away from New York and everything. Um, But like I can't, even though I'm in New York, all of my family is in D.C. and I can't imagine like settling down away from them. How have you how have you navigated being far away from your from your extended family? Yeah, that has probably been the most challenging part of the move, not having grandparents nearby Mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, So what we've tried to do is really spend quality time when we can. And our families have been really great about that. Like right after little Hildy was born a few weeks ago, my parents came out and did what they called grand camp with the grandkids (laughs) and took them away for a couple of weeks to do all kinds of fun things. And, um, and then just connecting over the phone and texting during the day and, and trying to stay in touch. 
my my dad is really cute and just started getting really into writing handwritten notes to everyone. So every few days we get a note in the mail from my dad to, to somebody in the family. And so I think that it has been difficult, but um, trying to stay in touch and building a community of close friends where we are, where we help them out with, with their kids and they help us out with our kids has been really key. Yeah. So, Haley, you have an entire chapter on Molly Weasley. She's um, one of my heroes. <laughs> I, I was psyched about this. So can you explain who she is and why you think she's a model for gospel virtues? Yes. Yeah, so in the Harry Potter series, I know everybody's going to be like, read another book. But like, sorry, I love it. I love Harry Potter. Those people are annoying and, and dumb. <laughs> so um, Molly Weasley is the matriarch of a large... I'm convinced they're Irish Catholic family of wizards. (laughs) And they, um, I guess they have, how many kids do they have? Seven, something like that. Mm -hmm. And they live in this house that's kind of pieced together by magic. It looks like it's about to fall down. And they have chickens and they're kind of, don't have two pennies to scrape together. But the, the husband, Arthur, really enjoys his job and muggle studies and all of that. And so um, what I notice about the Weasleys is they're the family in the series that you kind of wish you were a part of. And Harry, the the orphaned character, is kind of adopted by them unofficially. And so seeing how Molly, in the midst of, in, in some ways, lots of challenges, is really pursuing hospitality, opening opening up her home and her family's really the heart of her home to people on the margins, Harry, the half giant Hagrid, you know, Tonks who needs to talk about her love life over a cup of tea, you know, that she just makes herself available to serve other people in a really beautiful way. And, um, so I just always think about the kind of joy that seems to come from their home amidst the messiness of family life and, you know, arguments and problems and even estrangement that there's just something really attractive about the way they run their family that I think lines up with Christian charity pretty well. Yeah. I love that. Me too. Um, we do have one last question. Though you might have already answered. <laughs> yes. But we do ask this of all of our guests. So if you could canonize one person, living or dead, fiction or not, wizard or muggle, <laughs> who, would it, who would it be and why? <laughs> oh, gosh. I think I would say Flannery O'Connor. Writer, I... writer of fiction. <laughs> writer of fiction. And um, just, yeah, fabulous, fabulous Catholic novelist and struggled with chronic illness and yet was able to keep pursuing the Christian life. And I I think of her often, I got to visit her home in Milledgeville, Georgia, her, the farmhouse, they called the farm Andalusia. And she lived there with her mother who she found incredibly difficult to live with. And, and she kind of had to move home because of her illness. And so I just think about that kind of purgatorial situation you know she's writing she's living somewhere that she didn't plan to live with someone who's difficult to love and just continuing to serve god and pursue the truth and i just think she's fabulous and she's sassy too yeah i'm i'm shocked i think that is the first flannery yeah 
nomination for canonization <laughs> that we've gotten. So, all right, St. Flannery. Well, the book is The Grace of Enough, and it's out from Ave Maria Press and can be found wherever fine books are sold, I'm guessing. Where else can people find your work, Haley? Yeah, Ave Maria, um, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and then probably your friendly Catholic bookstore. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. so. And where can they find your other work? Sure. My blog is Carrots for Micklemas, which is spelled like Michael, M-A-S. And then my podcast is called Fountains of Carrots. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks so much, Haley. And Thank you, you Haley. successively rocked the baby to sleep. I know. I I'm oh like my finding myself rocking back and forth with Haley. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just going to fall asleep now. It's so soothing. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Haley. Thanks, Haley. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. some housekeeping. This episode is brought to you by Cristo Rey Jesuit High School in Chicago. For 23 years, Cristo Rey has educated students from Latino families with limited means, preparing the leaders of tomorrow today. Learn about their mission at cristorey.net. And as we said earlier, this is quite an interview to watch, the if one you that like you just babies. heard. And yes. if you don't like babies, I don't know why you're listening to the show. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, so, a reminder that you can watch the full uh, unedited versions of our of our interviews if you're a Patreon supporter. So as of recording, we are also $10 away from hitting $1,000 a month. Are you serious? I didn't I'm, know that. I am serious. What? So uh, if someone out there, if we get 10 people to do $1, five, or five people to give $2, yeah. that's all the math I'm going to do. One person to give $10 would actually yeah. just do it. One ambassador. You get a, you get a t-shirt. If you pledge at the ambassador level. Yes. So this really helps keep the show going. And this would be a huge milestone that we could go back to our bosses and show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But seriously, it would really mean a lot. And yeah. thank you to everyone who already does support. It's patreon.com slash America Media. And as we mentioned in the Signs of the Times and the Nuns in the Bus story, we are going to be meeting the Nuns in the Bus in Morristown, New Jersey on October 23rd. 7 p.m. at the Church of the Redeemer. So you can learn more about this event at networklobby.org slash bus2018 slash events. And we will be promoting it in our show notes, on our Facebook group, and our Twitter feed. And you also have no excuse not to come if you're in the tri-state area because it's free. And so it's And it's nuns. And it's us. That's the trifecta. <laughs> we'll see you there. Also, if you're looking for an event to go to this month and you're in Denver, check out the Solidarity on Tap event on October 23rd at Diebold Brewing Company. The topic will be climate change in Denver. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? I've got a consolation this week. Um, so people, my co-hosts know and our listeners that I moved into my own apartment back in June. Um, and some of my co-hosts and people on this team went to the housewarming party. Oh, they're uh, sitting, but I'm over it, whatever. Gosh. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I won't make you feel bad. Um, but I'm finally starting to feel fully settled into the space. Um, and for a while, I was really, you know, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. In Dominican culture, if it were up to my mom, I would have stayed through my engagement and through my marriage and my first kid, whatever. Um, at her house. At her house with Enoch and our future kids. But anyways... <laughs> So for a while, I was feeling really guilty and anxious, and my space really didn't feel like my own. Um, but this weekend, I was just getting random packages and, and kind of just organizing stuff around the apartment. And it just felt like 
I felt rejuvenated and I felt like, you know, I was doing my prayers, my daily prayers. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is my own spiritual space that I've created for myself. And it's for for some reason, I thought that it would always be confined to the physical space of being in my parents' home. And it was just really consoling to realize that, no, you're an adult who can do this on her own. Yeah. I went to Olga's space, unlike some All of right. our co-hosts. And it, it, it feels like home. Thank it's you, been Ashley. broken in. It's being home now. Thank you. you. Yeah. What do you have, Zach? So uh, this week, I have a desolation. Uh, I was talking with uh, a loved one who um, is... A woman in my life who was mentioning having a very hard time uh, sort of processing with every all the storylines that have been coming up with uh, the Kavanaugh uh, nomination process. Uh, she also mentioned this other story um, in Alaska where this guy pled guilty to kidnapping a woman, uh, choking her until she passed out and then masturbating on her face and then not getting any jail time. Um and so she was really feeling like just scared that there aren't consequences for like men who do these things and like being brought to tears and feeling really anxious about all of this. And I, you know, the desolation is just sort of looking at all of the fear and the injustice and I, it, it, how, especially how it's affecting this loved one of mine in the moment and not feeling like I can say anything or do anything to make it better. Um, and so try, like just sitting with that and getting lost in that fear uh, was my desolation this week. I think, yeah, those kind of conversations are hard. But I think just as a man, just listening to women when they have those feelings is like a fantastic first step. Thanks, Olga. Ashley, what do you have? I guess a desolation. But as Eric often does, he kind of like put a, <laughs> a nice spin on it. So maybe it could turn to a consolation. But um, so this, my parish um, has this Arise program, which I think Zach did. It's like a... I did do it, yeah. An, an adult like faith formation thing where you get together with a small group. I think it's generally an older population of the parish does it. Um, and so over six weeks, you meet with these people at a home. And I was like, I told myself I was going to do it. And then the deadline for signing up passed and I didn't do it. And... I think that was partly out of, you know, laziness, but also like being afraid of what it would be like to have these kind of spiritual conversations with a different generation. Um, and then I like find myself in October, like Lent was a long time ago. Advent still feels very far away and it's just like a very dry period. And so I'm like feeling all this regret and guilt about not signing up for a rise because it seems like it could have been a good thing to do. <laughs> um, and I didn't. Uh, but Eric pointed out that like the fact that I do feel regret means that I want, I do, I'm, there's a desire within me to kind of like kickstart my prayer life. And even, even that desire as, um, faint as it may feel right now is, is God talking to me. So as long as I keep, keep following that path and not giving in to like the guilt and regret of not, of not doing a rise, then I'll be. I'll be okay. <laughs> I also just wrote an email as you were talking, CCing the Arise coordinator, mm -hmm. uh, telling her about you. So you're already done. You're, yeah. you're going to be signed up. This, this, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't really, but. No. But you got that hookup if I need I, it. I got it if you need it. So just let me know. All right. Thanks, Zach. All right. Get us out of here. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Diane Machuca Frazier. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Brandon Sanchez. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. 
shout out this week to no one. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>